Nearly 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote a letter to the church in the city of Corinth uh, addressing problems that existed in the world at that time and in the church. Now, when I say at that time, I'm talking about the 50s. <laughs> no, not the 1950s. I mean the 50s, the first century the 50s is when Paul wrote his letter to the church at Corinth. And this letter contains so many similarities to what's going on in our world today and in the church across the world today. There is no question that our study together of this letter to 1 Corinthians uh, will help us to understand how God would have us to respond to, to these same issues. Many of those issues, if not all of them today, still uh, relevant to you and I and our lives in our world today. And at the heart of it all is the gospel. I don't want you to think as we go through our study of 1 Corinthians that that all of the issues, the problems, the challenges that, that are raised, that Paul uh, answers questions about, that he responds to concerns about, that it's just a letter of issues, of problems, of topics for our study. It's all about God's church being the church. And it's about the church showing, proclaiming, shining forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's critical that we understand that. Would you open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'd like to read the first two verses for you. We looked at these verses uh, last week, but we're going to begin again with 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and uh, the first two verses. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth. There it is. The church in the city of Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. In verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw last week how, how this all began. The church started through Paul's efforts and Aquila and Priscilla and Silas and Timothy as they came together to start a church in the city of Corinth. And Acts chapter 18 tells all about that. If you weren't with us last week, didn't have the opportunity to, uh, to see uh, our time together, please read through Acts chapter 18. It'll give you a real insight into how the church at Corinth, as we read about it now in the book of 1 Corinthians, how it all started. And if you did read, reread it. It will continue to, to stir up thoughts and, and about people, about individuals, about places, as the church got its start there in the city of Corinth. 
And uh, we're going to also, uh, as we now begin to move through, continue to encourage you to read through Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians. And uh, we're going to look, first of all, today at a little overview of the city, of the letter, and then of the church in Corinth. And so let me just get started as we talk about the city. There are some factors that have to do with with getting to know about the city of Corinth that will help us in our understanding of what some of the issues are that Paul is dealing with and why Paul says what he says in the way he says it. And so as we look at that, the first thing to know is understanding the geography of the city of Corinth. One of the most significant factors that made Corinth the city that it was Uh, 40 to 50 miles west of Athens, located on a four-mile isthmus, a land bridge. And I've got a map. You should be seeing a map on your screen. And and if you'll notice, you can see uh, the red Ephesus over to the right on your picture. And then as you'll notice, you go up. That's Asia up and around. You'll see Philippi and Thessalonica that are located there in the northern area of Greece. And then to the southern section of Greece, down where we see Athens and then to the west of that, Corinth. And, and you'll notice there's a, a little land piece between Athens and Corinth. And I have a, uh, the next map kind of zeroes in and you can see that even more clearly. You can see Athens over to your right and then moving about 40 to 50 miles west on uh, that land bridge you'll see in red there, Corinth. And that is connecting northern and southern Greece. And if you notice that that small land area there, right where Corinth is, is about four miles wide. And this was uh, a very significant aspect, this geography of what was going on there in Corinth. It made it a crossroads. And if I can see that map again, or you can see it, you can see that, that there was a land bridge coming across that would connect uh, the north and the south. Uh, sections of Greece, but you'll also see that the waterways there, up to the north, the Gulf of Corinth and the Saronic Gulf below that, and so it was connected by water, it was connected by land, it was a crossroads for all kinds of travel and for people. And that was a significant aspect, it's what made the city what it was in that day. Larger ships now would, if you'll see, would come up from uh, the south and they would come into Corinth at that uh, isthmus there and uh, they would transfer their goods over the land from one gulf to the other, from the south to the north. And what this would allow to have happened is if you'll see down southern Uh, Greece. You'll see down where it says the Mediterranean Sea for ships to have to go to the south of Greece all the way up uh, over heading to Rome. That southern, those waters were very, very dangerous. It was also a much longer trip to take down around the southern uh, area of, of Greece. And so they would empty the ships, transfer the cargo Uh, across the land onto other ships that would continue on their way uh, west at wherever they were going, especially many who were going 
uh, to Rome, and it would avoid a much longer and much more dangerous trip rather than south- around the southern tip of Greece. And uh, so, so that's important that we understand that. Also, one of the geographical uh, features and that, that if you would study uh, the city of Corinth, you would find out it's called the Acro-Corinth, uh, a hill in um, a mountain, really, that rose 2,000 feet above sea level right there in the city. And it was on top of that mountain that the uh, temple of Aphrodite existed. And uh, the city could be uh, called, in case of attack, up to the top of that 2,000-foot plateau mountain. And it would be an amazing opportunity for them to be very defensible, almost impregnable, as they would hide up or plan to defend their city from on top of that mountain. So the geography was a significant thing, especially that isthmus that made Corinth the city, the crossroads that it was uh, there in the area of Greece. But then prosperity, and the prosperity came about as well because of all of the trade, because of the isthmus, because of all of the travel, the commercial, uh, uh, the commerce and the manufacturing that took place there in the city. It was known for its bronze, for its pottery, and for its marble. It was an international city. Uh, with a large floating population, in other words, it would ebb and flow, uh, of merchants and travelers who would visit resorts or do business. They'd come for maybe a few days and stay there and then leave and move on. And that's uh, what the population was like. And uh, we think about 100,000 to half a million. The reason that it's difficult to identify an exact number is because only free people were counted whenever population statistics were, were taken. And uh, so those slaves who were slaves weren't considered a count, a number. Kind of appropriate to say that today on the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday when life does matter to God. But uh, in that city, the prosperity was an Olympic stadium. And I'll get to to that in just a minute as to why that was important. There was a large theater that would hold about 18,000 people that that would entertain people. There was a concert hall that would seat about 3,000 people. There was a lot going on there in the city of Corinth because of the prosperity, the wealth, the money that flowed because of all the commerce that was going on. And then, as I mentioned, the Olympic Stadium that was in the city of Corinth, um, that was about the Isthmian Games. Now, you've heard of the Olympics, the Olympic Games every four years. Uh, actually, it's spread out and alternates the two between the Winter and Summer Olympics. But the Isthmian Games were second only in athletic importance and size to the Olympics. And the Isthmian Games took place every two years, very similar to the events of the Olympics. And they took place right there in the city, near the city of Corinth. Uh, the Isthmian Games were, were uh, uh, an opportunity, again, to provide more income and more immorality, too. That's one of the results of what happened. And when all of this uh, 
the people, the athletes and, and their trainers and families and people that wanted to watch would come to town. Yes, it brought income, but it stepped up the immorality that took place. There was also a great need for housing because there was a temporary housing necessary for those games to take place. So what kind of temporary housing do you think they might find at that point? It would be tents. Why is that significant? Because what was Paul's occupation? Besides being a preacher of the gospel, he was a tent maker. And in fact, he met Aquila and Priscilla there in Corinth who were also tent makers. They would repair and make tents. And this would uh, provide, because of the Isthmian Games, would provide a real opportunity for them to, to use their trade. And yes, to make a living, but that wasn't the primary need for what they were doing. Tent making gave them an opportunity to mix it up with the common people in the city of Corinth. Ultimately, to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. It also added the Isthmian Games to Paul's athletic illustrations and, uh, and analogies that he mentioned throughout 1 Corinthians. And uh, so, so the Isthmian Games had a big in, uh, uh, influence in the city of Corinth. Religion. Uh, there were 26 different shrines or temples uh, and all of their accompanying religions and gods located in the city of Corinth. Um, because of all of those various religions and gods, that was pluralism. In other words, many gods were there. And uh, there was no one right God in their minds, very similar to what was going on in Athens. But it also meant that an exclusivism, uh, presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ, went against the religious uh, climate of the day there in Corinth. Uh, the temple of Aphrodite uh, was the Greek goddess. Uh, Venus would have been the Roman name for her, but the temple of Aphrodite was up on top of the Acro-Corinth, and that's where the worship of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty and desire, uh, who, who worshipped sex. Uh, they had religious prostitutes there. At one time, uh, they, it was said that there were a thousand prostitutes that worked there at the temple of Aphrodite during the day. At night, they'd come down into uh, the city, and of course, they would be available for whoever was interested in, in the prostitution at that time. The Temple of Apollo, and if you'd ever seen pictures of Corinth, you'd see the seven pillars, concrete pillars that are still standing there in the city of Corinth. Zeus, the Olympian god, the god of all gods, king of all other gods. There was the uh, Temple of Asclepius, who was the god of healing. And throughout the city of Corinth, you could buy clay replicas of human body parts that needed healing. So if your arm was broken, or your foot hurt, or you uh, were subject to migraines, you could buy body parts, uh, clay arms, or hands, or legs, or feet. There's even uh, in a museum there uh, a brain that was found, uh, whatever that problem was, who knows, 
But of course, to go right along with the temple of Aphrodite, there were replicas of sex organs that you could get. And, and there's no doubt that sexually transmitted diseases were rampant throughout the city and people would come to be healed. They'd purchase these body parts and, and make sacrifice to Asclepius, the god of healing. Is it any wonder that Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 12 about one body, many parts? That would be an illustration as he illustrates the church, the body of Christ, and the spiritual gifts that were used that would relate to the Corinthians at that time. And then, of course, the fifth factor that had a lot to do with what went on in the city of Corinth was the rampant immorality. The city was famous because of all of that. In fact, there was a word that was coined that was uh, called, said to, to Corinthianize, meant to live an immoral lifestyle. And Paul addresses the immorality that was a problem there in the city, but also that was in the church, and he talks about throughout his letter of 1 Corinthians. So that's the city. And we'll talk more as we study through, uh, but a little bit of a foundation for you, the letter. There are actually four letters that Paul wrote, only two of which we have in our Bible. But 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter, uh, we have no record of, other than that Paul makes reference to it in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. And there Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul's referring in the letter of 1 Corinthians to a letter that he'd already written. We have no record of that. We, we, we don't know, but we know it existed because Paul talks about it. And of course, he's mentioning uh, not to associate with sexually immoral people. He's talking about believers. He's not talking about those who didn't know Jesus who were living that lifestyle. He's talking to those in the church, but we'll get to that. Then the second letter that Paul wrote that we have actually record of is the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Paul's third letter is referred to when he gets to 2 Corinthians, and uh, when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he makes reference in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians and verse 4. He says, for I wrote you out of great desire and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Paul is, is referring in 2 Corinthians to a letter that he had written. Now, when we study through, we know that it wasn't a reference to 1 Corinthians, the book that we're studying now, but somewhere in between, there was this third letter. Again, we don't have a copy of it, but that was really a third letter that he wrote to, that he refers to here and at other places in uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians. And then, of course, the fourth letter that Paul wrote was... 2 Corinthians. We're studying 1 Corinthians. The fourth letter that Paul wrote was 2 Corinthians. You might say they more accurately would be called the second and fourth letters, but we call them 1 and 2 Corinthians. Uh, these are the ones that made the canon of Scripture. Now, that's a term that uh, is, is referring to the God-breathed Holy Spirit 
um, inspired books of the Bible that are actually in our Bible today. That's another subject and another study for the, the future for us. But that's the letter. And Paul also then, why would Paul write? So we would say, okay, so why did Paul write 1 Corinthians? He, actually, his second letter to the believers there in Corinth. What was the occasion? And we call 1 Corinthians, as we do many of Paul's epistles or letters, an occasional letter. There was a specific occasion, something that caused Paul to write. And so we look at uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11, and we know one of the reasons Paul was writing this letter of 1 Corinthians is because some from the household of Chloe had, had written or contacted Paul. Look at verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and this is what we read. Paul says, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Paul heard first about the divisions that were in the church, and we'll get to that as we move down through our study but he heard first about the divisions, the quarrels, the disagreement, the fighting amongst God's people from the household of Chloe. Now then we move down to chapter 5 and verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. And chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Actually reported. By who? Probably Chloe's household or somebody else, we don't know. But Paul also heard about what was going on and responded there. Uh, down to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and then 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 18. And this is what Paul says there. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions. So again... Paul heard as it relates to the abuse of the Lord's Supper. He heard, again, could very well have been from the household of Chloe or some others, but he was responding to news that he'd received that he heard. He's also responding to a letter that some from the church had written to Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, we read, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Every one of these examples has something about sexual relations. I told you that's why, that's what's going on in the culture. It has come into the church, and we're going to get to that and study through that. But Paul says, now for the matters you wrote about. He says, you wrote to me about these issues. And that begins at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So that's some of why Paul wrote the things that he addressed. He heard about from Chloe's household. He also heard about from a letter that the church had written to Paul. And he responded to Chloe and her concerns. He also responded to the letter that he received from the church. And that takes us to the church. The church, the problems and challenges that Paul addressed. And I would encourage you to continue, if you haven't yet done it, to read through, set aside some time and read through 1 Corinthians in one sitting. You can do it. It's not that long. 
It'll take you less than an hour. You just sit down and start at chapter 1 and just read right through. You'll get a good idea of the flow. You'll, you'll come across Chloe's household and you'll see where uh, their concerns that she shared or her household share. And then you'll hear after chapter 7 some of the concerns as well that were found in, in a letter that the church sent to Paul that he responded to. But as we walk through the 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians or walk through the letter that was one letter, obviously not divided into chapters like we have. Those are more of a man-made thing that, that has been put in there. But uh, th there is talk about division. That's how chapter 1 begins. There was division over church leaders. And uh, we have a, a, a number of these things. Uh, Paul, many would say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm for Paul. I follow him. And, well, I follow Apollos. Or I follow Peter. And I follow Christ. And we're going to look at that. But there was division taking place in the church. There was lack of church discipline. There had been a toleration of sin in the church at Corinth. It was known as incest. And nothing was done about it. In fact, some were proud about it. And Paul rebukes them and says that church discipline needs to be exercised in regard to that. There were believers taking one another to court, suing them. That's what Paul's writing about as well. He was talking about sexual immorality again in chapter 6 that was taking place. Even with prostitutes, yes, in the church for believers. And then he talks about sexual relations within marriage. He talks about singleness. He talks about divorce. He talks about getting married and all that's involved in that. Paul talks about eating food offered to idols. And as he does that, he challenges the believers in Corinth, you need to be willing to give up your rights rather than hold on to things. And we're getting to the weaker brother, stronger brother just a little bit. Paul talked about head coverings that are, were worn and, and should they be worn? What's the significance of that during the gatherings of the people together for worship? Is there abuse of the Lord's Supper? Again, that was part of the problem of divisions. That's where that started. You had the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor. And it was abusing the Lord's Supper, communion, as we call it. Um, then Paul talked about the use of spiritual gifts and what are spiritual gifts and what are those abilities and how should we use them and should we desire them. And he talks especially about prophecy and speaking in tongues. What does the Bible say about that? And in the middle of all of that talk about um, spiritual gifts, he talks about love. And the need to love one another. The love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. He, he talks to the, to the church about the resurrection. There were some questioning the resurrection of believers. What that life after death looked like. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then of course at the end in chapter 16. About the collection of money for the believers in Jerusalem. What was involved in that. As we study through this letter, and, and that was just a skimming of some of those things, you can read it through and pick up on those. Maybe even make your own list. 
of things that were challenges or problems or issues that needed to be dealt with that Paul was going to seek to set in order for the church. But as we study through this letter, it's very important that we remember. Remember that the people that Paul is addressing are followers of Jesus. The individuals that Paul is dealing with, the questions that he's answering, the things that were going on, the strife, the division, the disunity, the immorality, all of what was involved there, Paul is addressing followers of Jesus, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. But it's important that we remember that he's writing the majority of those that he's writing to are new believers. They're new in the faith. You see, Paul is writing this letter, 1 Corinthians, three to four years after the church began. And those people that came to Christ, that uh, put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, had only known Jesus for three or four years. So they were still new believers. What we would say was these, were, these people were not spiritually mature believers. In fact, they were spiritually immature people. And you, as you read through the letter, you may think Paul has to be talking to people who don't know God. No, because they're new in the faith, only three to four years old when Paul is writing this, three to four years old in their faith in Christ, they're still, many of them, very spiritually immature. And, and that is a significant part of the letter that Paul writes and why I believe uh, it has a lot to do with really the theme and the purpose of why Paul is writing. In light of all that, however, look again at how Paul addresses the believers there at the church in Corinth. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, what we just read. He says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, look, to the church of God in Corinth, notice this, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people. The word sanctified, the word holy uh, are very similar words. In fact, they come from the same root word. So Paul is talking to them as believers and he's saying to them, you who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. So what do we do with that? How, what's the big deal? What, why do we need to understand? Because I think it leads to a greater knowledge and understanding and application of the truths of what we find in 1 Corinthians. Holy <laughs> is not one of the first words that comes to mind when we think about the church at Corinth, right? I mean, as we have been talking, we've mentioned immorality numerous times. Paul addresses that. So when, when we're uh, describing uh, the church at Corinth, holy isn't a word that you would first 
think of when you're talking about the, the people that make up the church. And yet that's exactly how Paul begins his letter. He's writing to people who are sanctified, holy. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, the word holy or sanctified means to be set apart. Both words mean that. To be sanctified is to be set apart. First of all, in position. Set apart as a believer, as a child of God. That is our position, our standing before God. We have been set apart from sin. We have been taken out of the world and put into the, the body of believers that we call the church. Set apart, in position, and declared to be holy. It's like we've said justification is that when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous. We are declared to be right before God. That's our position as a believer, as a child of God. It's who we are before God. But then he says, that's the sanctified. That's your setting apart in a position of a child of God, declared to be holy. But then he says, he goes on in there, and when he talks about called to be his holy people, he's talking about being set apart in practice. Because of our position, because of who we are, we are also called to be holy. We're not just declared holy people, our position before God. That will never change. Nothing can affect that. That's eternal security. That's, that's once saved, I never can lose my salvation. But he's talking now, once you're in that position as a child of God, you've been declared holy. Now in your practice, in the way you live, you have been called to be holy. That's what Paul is saying, and that's how he starts his letter. He's reminding them of who they are and how they need to live in light of who they are. In other words, they're already holy, and God calls them to be holy. You say, it sounds like double talk to me. No, it's not. It's saints must live like saints. That's what Paul's talking about. You see, the gospel has changed who we are. And we need to live as those who are different. Peter says in 1 Peter that we've been called to be holy. He says, be ye holy in the way you live. Why? Because God is holy. And it's the gospel that makes that difference. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We know verses 3 and 4, that's about Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But the two verses before that, Paul says this, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. By this gospel, you are saved. You are positionally declared to be holy. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. The holding firmly is the living out the holy life. 
as we have been called holy, we're to live holy lives. And what's the gospel? That Jesus died in my place for my sin. That's the gospel. And when we believe, we're changed. We're declared holy. And Paul is saying, once you're declared holy, you've been called to live a holy life. Again, so what? So what? What does all this mean? What's the point? Here it is, and I want you to write this down. God's holy people must become what they already are. I, I had been struggling, trying to figure out what is the theme of this letter. There's so many different topics and issues and problems and challenges. What is the unifying theme of the book? What is it that we need to drive home and get in our minds and use that to understand all of what Paul's writing about? And, and I had in mind the words spiritual maturity, the need for that, and salvation of the gospel, and, and living in a way that shows Christ is in us. And here it is, I came across this from one of the, one of the authors that I studied. I love this, it's exactly, I couldn't put it better myself. He agrees with me. Actually, I, I agree with him, but, but, but there it is, God's holy people must become what they already are. You write that down because we're going to talk about that throughout our study together. It is critical. God's holy people must become what they already are. That was Paul's burden necessary for the Corinthian believers. It is also necessary for the believers at Heritage. You see, this is the practice sanctification the progressive holiness the growth in our relationship to Jesus Christ we must as God's holy people become more and more all the time what we already are it's real simple become more like Jesus are you becoming what you already are is there growth are you living a holy life even though you've already been declared holy and how are you doing that how are you becoming more like Jesus we're going to study this through in our uh, going through first Corinthians and I'd encourage you to read through the whole letter at once and specifically for next week, read through the first chapter, the first nine verses. We'll talk about next Sunday as we study in our time together. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Bible, the Word of God. Thank you for Paul and for his letter here that we are studying, 1 Corinthians. Oh God, there's so much for us as believers living in 2021. So many of the same issues that the church dealt with back in the 50s. God, help us to make sure that we are becoming holy because we already are declared holy. 
Help us to live holy lives so that people around us see Jesus in us. See the difference that he's made when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for this study together. And if there's any watching or listening today who don't know Jesus, who have never received the gospel, well, God, help them understand that God loved them and that Jesus died for them in their place for their sin. And you can believe today. Thank you, Father, for it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, have a great week. We'll see you same place right here. Read 1 Corinthians. Have a great day.